you welcome everybody. Thank you for hitting your mute buttons. And uh, I, I trust that you've seen the handout, which is posted at the webpage, but I'm going to do a screen share again. In fact, let's give it the old college try here. Darn it. Why don't I see it? Hold on. All right. That's not it. Stop share. I brought it up on my desktop. So, Dory, what do I do? Oh, wait, desktop. Hold on. Uh, all right, so I need some help here. Here comes Frank. So I, I put the handle on my desktop, and last time it showed up, but I don't, somehow I don't see it. Frank. Frank's helping. Well, we go to documents. I, I think I'm helping. <laughs> I don't. I don't use Mac, so this is this is share. But you need to find the the document, right? Yes. So and this is the desktop. Where is the document? Yeah. I last time it came right up. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I should and hit this files. Is, this is the document. That's the document right there. Yeah. Is it now? Can you see it? Can you see the document? Can yes, you, it's there. Is it big? Thanks, Frank. Is it nice and big for you guys? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. So I'm going to make you all smaller on the side. Good. So there's our document, The Reign of Life, Romans 8, 9 to 13. Jan, if I forget to scroll down, you'll remind me. Thank you. And uh, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you and um, look to you and acknowledge you as the giver of life and hope, the giver of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving Jesus your spirit to us. You ascended on high, you sat down, you poured out your spirit to make known the invisible reign of your glory visible on this earth and to give us life and to be our teacher and our hope. And You are present with us by your spirit. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, you transform our minds, you renew them by the truth, you'd show us what Paul is writing to us, and uh, because of it, we would find greater joy and confidence and obedience in your presence. We commit our time to you. I thank you for these dear saints. Would you love them through this teaching? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Great. So you see the handout, beloved, and don't forget, if you're joining us here, if you would hit your mute button. Thank you so much. Don't forget your mute buttons. Here's our text. It's Romans 8, 9 to 13. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
What is Paul doing in this section? He is teasing out the implications of being indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. And to do that, he makes a series of assertions in verses 9 through 11, followed by some of the moral implications of this in verses 12 to 13. So let's look at the assertions. There are actually five of them. And I'll cycle back a a little bit into the earlier verses into six because there's a couple things I wanted to call your attention to that I didn't feel I adequately addressed last week. So verse six, the mind set on the flesh is death. That's the unregenerate mind, the, the, the natural mind that we're born with into this world. It's set on the flesh. It's death. It's blind. It's hostile to God. It's unresponsive to God. It's set on doing things its own way. The mind set on the flesh is death, but what a glorious contrast. The mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Let's just tease out for a second those two words, life and peace. What does he mean by life? Well, life represents the presence of God. It represents light from God, light from God's word. We now see things as they are. With the Spirit, life brings us new affections. The Holy Spirit creates in our hearts new desires, new affection, a new drawing to God. We're also aware of the battle within us between indwelling sin and our true hearts where Christ dwells. We have a mind for God's truth, an appetite for the truth of God. We're now seeing things as they truly are. And one of the points to make here is you have to know you were blind in order to truly see. And uh, this episode in John 9 about the man born blind and Jesus has this dust up with the Pharisees in the process of them trying to determine whether or not the miracle really happened. The conclusion of this drama, Jesus says this, for judgment I came into this world. Oh, well, what is that judgment? Here it is. Here's this distinction that Jesus makes by his presence, by his teaching, by what he has to say. That those who do not see may see, and those who see or read think they see without a work of the Spirit from God, that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, are we also blind? See, they take offense at Jesus' teaching. You wouldn't possibly be saying, we don't get it spiritually, would you be? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, that is, you knew you didn't see the truth without the intervention of God's Spirit. If you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. So thinking you get it spiritually, apart from the Holy Spirit bringing God's truth to us, means we're still blind and we're still in our guilt. So um, the mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the spirit is life and peace. That's life. What do we say about peace? There are two sides to peace. There's the relational component. We are at peace with God. No condemnation, nothing to prove, nothing to lose. 5-1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the relational component and the circumstantial component. Here's a, just a verse from one of the hymns in the Trinity, Come Ye Sinners, which speaks a little bit to that relational component. Soul, then know thy full salvation. Rise or sin in, or in fear and care. Joy to find in every station. Something still to do or bear. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. 
Here are the benefits of being in Christ, the benefits of our salvation, the glories of Christ winning us for himself. Think what spirit dwells within thee. That's what Paul is saying in a sense in these verses. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? So we have relational peace with God, but also the mindset on the spirit is circumstantial peace. I mean, how could it not be? That a mind being transformed by the spirit of God, what should result in our hearts? Peace in our hearts. Here's one verse that's meant a lot to me personally, 2 Thessalonians 3.16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace, peace of heart, peace of conscience, at all times, in every way. The Lord be with you all. So Paul is there speaking about the, situ- the, 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 the peace where our hearts are, well, here I've given you a definition of it. There's a settled rest of soul that relishes peace with God through Christ's victory. It's grounded on what Jesus has done for us objectively. So peace, think of peace as joy resting. Joy is peace dancing. So what you tell yourself when you have peace in your heart is, I am dearly loved, eternally safe in God's protecting hand. So you're not freaking out. You're not panicking. Your heart is resting. It's at peace. This is what Jesus promised to give us in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. See, peace is the opposite of having a troubled heart. Peace banishes fear. Peace is a sense of resting in God's good care. God's in control in spite of what's going on around me. So the mindset on the the spirit is life and peace. And I want to make this point, that it isn't enough to just know the truth. You have to keep pounding it into your mind. So for example, Peter, our beloved Peter that we're working through, 1 Peter, he goes on in uh, 2 Peter to allude to this in two different ways. First, by indicating the peril of forgetfulness. In other words, I'm not pounding the truth into my mind. And the ministry of remembering. In chapter 1, Peter begins... And he says, for if these qualities are yours and increasing, if you were to look at the prior verses, you see the qualities he's teasing out and encouraging us to be pursuing our virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, and brotherly love. He says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing. So we, we, we never outgrow our need to grow in these qualities. They always should be growing, deepening, increasing, maturing in our lives. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What do these qualities do? They rescue us from ourselves. What a terrible state to be in if you knew Christ and yet you were ineffective or unfruitful. What a warning. Look at my heart. Look at my life. Look at my thinking. Is my life bearing fruit? Is it effective in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? We just don't know Christ for the sake of knowing him. We know Christ for the sake of serving him, bringing glory to him, doing effective ministry for him, being fruitful for the Lord Jesus Christ. So then he says, whoever lacks these qualities 
again, the qualities of virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, and brotherly love. He's saying, test yourself. Look at your life. Lay this template over your life, thought, word, and deed. Is your life marked by these things, these fruits of the Spirit? This is sort of Peter's take on the fruit of the Spirit, if you will. He says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. You've forgotten. (laughs) You haven't pounded these into your thinking. He says, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Boy, that's pretty simple, isn't it? He wraps up the essence of what we're not to forget. He wraps up the heart of what we're supposed to remember as cleanse from our former sins. The gospel, Christ's blood shed for us, Christ's blood that cleanses us. The cross, he brings us to the cross. And when we forget the cross, we become blind. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. The doctrine of election never gives us reason to kick our feet up and do nothing for the Lord. No. It calls us to diligence. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fail. So these are the warnings that come come along with the wonderful uh, doctrine of assurance. Yes, we belong to Jesus through God's sovereign choice, but we're warned in the midst of those not, not to grow slack, not to become blind, not to forget For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our our entrance into Christ's presence in the end, God ordains, is through the means of diligence, not forgetting, keeping ourselves from being blind. So that's the peril of forgetfulness. What's the point I'm making? It isn't enough to know the truth. You have to keep pounding it into your mind. This is one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. And then Peter goes immediately on to show us how important remembering is. 2 Peter 1, 12 to 14. Therefore, in light of all of that, beloved, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Here's the teacher putting in front of his students the things they already know. See, though you know them are established in the truth, truth that you have. So you take the truth. What does the truth do? It establishes you. It sends down roots. It makes you secure. It keeps you in trial. When the storms come, you're secure because you are established in the truth. Your roots go deep into the word of God, deep into Christ. Nonetheless, I'm going to remind you of these things. Verse 13, I think it right. As long as I'm in this body, as long as I have a ministry from the Lord, to stir you up by way of reminder. This verb, stir up, means to awaken from sleep. So parents... Uh, well, well let's, your loved one is sleeping in a bed and it's time to get up and, and they're dozing and you go over, you, you, you touch them on the shoulder and you gently stir them to get them up from sleep. He says, as long as I have a ministry in this body, I want to stir you up. I want to remind you. And then he says, because he knows he's going to die soon since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. As Peter thinks about the end of his life, what's most important to him? Stirring up the minds with the truth of Christians that he's writing to. They already know the truth. They've established in that truth. But what do they need? They need remembering. He then uh, reiterates that at the beginning of chapter 3 in 2 Peter. Now, this is the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, what am I doing? I'm stirring up, same verb, to awaken from sleep, 
stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Let me remind you. Let me keep, right? If, if, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I'd say most of the people that I'm speaking to this morning have probably been Christians 10, 15, 20 years or longer. I'm probably not teaching you anything you don't already know. That would probably, very likely, you're not learning anything new from me. So why bother for the ministry of stirring up, for the ministry of reminder, to having it in front of us so that we can pound it into our thinking? Our hearts are like Teflon. When the gospel hits them, it tends to fall off. That's why we continue to preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another day in and day out. So I stir you up, uh, your sincere mind, by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Then he goes on to talk about those. Okay, first point. Second point. The Spirit creates a new desire and ability to please God. Again, just before we got to 9, we saw in verse 7, this is the most dreadful thing that could be said about a human being. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is what the Spirit of God has rescued you from. Yay! Praise the Lord! Thank you! Man, that's cause for backward somersaults. Don't forget what you've been rescued from. If there's anything in you that wants to please God, anything in you that understands the truth of God, who God is, you have been delivered from that. You've been set free from that. So the fact that we love God, his law, not perfectly, but substantially love God, his law, and we find joy bringing heart, delight to his heart, relishing our friendship with him, this is the spirit of God creating uh, these things in us. should always make us humble and should fill us with praise and give us immense patience with people who aren't in the same place. We would have none of this apart from God's kind, gracious pursuit of us by His Spirit. Second point, the Spirit creates a new desire and ability to please God. Third point, the Spirit binds us to Christ. Verse 9, however, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. Why does Paul say this? Don't these Christians already know this? Yes, he is stirring them up by way of reminder, to use Peter's words. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit, he does not belong to him. Here's a test. Do I have the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the one who unites me to Jesus Christ. So I just want to make a point that probably isn't novel to you, and that is there is no such thing as Christianity without being born again. There's no such thing as a Holy Spirit-less faith. Why do I say that? Have you ever met people that say, I'm a Christian, but I don't like all this born-again stuff? I've met people like that. They take umbrance with born-again language. Maybe they had a bad experience with somebody who used that kind of language. Maybe they don't like the preaching of Billy Graham, who said, you must be born again. Guess who first used the phrase, you must be born again, and if you're not, you cannot see the kingdom? Jesus. This is Jesus' language. So I kind of want to pull my hair out when I, when I uh, talk with people who, who think they're Christians but don't like all this born-again stuff. There is no such thing as a Christian who's not born again. When you're born again, that's when you become a Christian. The Spirit seals us as Christ's possession. Christ dwells in you by the Spirit who makes him known to us. So just a little Trinitarian theology. We believe in one God, 
one God, eternally existent in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And when God converts you, he sends his spirit to you, the Holy Spirit, to give you a new heart, to give you understanding, to open your eyes, to unstop your ears, to create faith in you. It is the Spirit of God. It is the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit of Christ. He's called all of those things, and he is a he, not an it. Sometimes you hear Christians refer to the Spirit as it. No, he is a person. He's the person of the Spirit of God, this person of the Spirit of Christ. He is the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit, when we have him, unites us to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to him. So, just a slight digression, and I'm not going to go through all this because I think I've put this material before you in, I think, in this class in some other um, fashion. But just to raise the question, look at this wonderful phrase, to belong to the Lord. If you're in Christ, you belong to the Lord. If you have the Spirit, you belong to the Lord. The Spirit comes and he gives us belonging to the Lord. It's such a wonderful phrase because in our human experience, there are a plethora of ways to understand belonging to someone. So I want to show you that God uses analogies to communicate to us the beauty of spiritual truth in ways we can readily relate to, uh, to communicate to us the multifaceted glory of belonging to him. And here's the list. I'm not going to go through it in detail because I think at some point earlier in our study, I put this before you. Before you. Somebody needs to mute out there. Um, so you can, I'll just run through it very, very quickly. You can belong to somebody by creation, by birth, by adoption, by marriage, purchase, personal property, searching, wages. You can belong to somebody by capture, common association, inheritance, organic connection, being owned, uh, owed by right because it's deserving, and uh, by bearing semblance to. So those are some of the ways that God tells us we belong to him. So I just, that's there for you for your personal reflection if you want to, but I, I want to move on. Uh, point four, we are spiritually alive even though our body will die. This is verse 10. Paul writes in verse 10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is life because of righteousness. We are a beautiful contradiction. We are currently living in bodies that are dying. Why are they dying? Because of sin. In the day you eat it, you will die. Sin kills bodies. If you've sinned, you're going to die. We've all sinned, we're all going to die. We're living in bodies that will die. Yet if Christ is in you, He's in you by virtue of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. Let me confess, I'm not sure exactly what Paul means by the Spirit is life because of righteousness. We know we have life by the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure exactly what he's thinking because of righteousness. Is he thinking our righteousness? He is talking about sanctification in this part of Romans. Is he thinking about the righteousness of Jesus Christ? It's one of those phrases Paul puts before us that scratches our heads and I'm not going to spend any more time on. Here's the point. Your body is dying, 
but you are alive because the Spirit is alive and He is in you. So we're beautiful contradictions. We hear here some echoes or reflections of Jesus' teaching on the Holy Spirit in John 14 to 16. In the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus is with his disciples. This is the night in which he's betrayed. He washes the disciples' feet. And then he begins to launch into a lot of very specific, in-depth teaching on the role of the Spirit. He's going to be leaving them, his physical presence. He'll be, he'll be with his Father in heaven. So how are they going to do ministry? How are they going to know him, etc.? So he gets into the, um, talking about the work of the Spirit. I'll just give you a couple verses from this section. John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. There's the ministry of remembering again. So, so Jesus is promising, in this case anyway, that the apostles will be given absolute truth about who Jesus is from the Father through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He will call to mind the things Jesus had spoken to them. He'll give them the ability to speak infallibly those things, the apostolic witness. John 15, 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. What is the Holy Spirit's chief pleasure? To point to Jesus, to witness to Jesus. He is like a spotlight. We don't look at a spotlight to see something. We benefit from the, what, what the spotlight shines its light on. Uh, J.I. Packer wrote an essay that I ran across years ago called The Holy Spirit, Shy Sovereign, that the Holy Spirit's pleasure is to stand in the background and shine the light on Jesus, to bring light to Jesus so Jesus can be known, Jesus can be seen. That's what the Spirit loves to do. He is, of, uh, by all, uh, he is, after all, the Spirit of Christ. And he says, and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. They'll bear witness by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then John 16, 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. You hear echoes in that of Jesus saying, everything I speak is what I've heard from my father. And so whatever the Spirit speaks is what he's hearing from Jesus and from the Father. This wonderful work of the Trinity brings us the truth of who God is, what God has done for us. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Thank God for the work of the Spirit. Do you see why there can be no such thing as a Christianity without the work of the Holy Spirit? And then here's the fifth and last point. I said that Paul's doing two things in this section. He's making assertions about the work of the Spirit, and then he's going to tease out some more implications. Here's the fifth assertion. The Spirit guarantees the resurrection of the body. Verse 11. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, guess what he's going to say next? It's exactly what you'd expect. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So what does the spirit love to do? Raise the dead. He's the power of God. By whom was Jesus raised from the dead? The Holy Spirit. And if that same spirit is in you, what is a certain eventuality? 
he will raise you from the dead too on the last day. So we have this down payment, this certainty. This is the basis on which Christians are certain they're going to heaven when they die. They're certain their bodies will be raised on the last day because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you have the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, well, by all means, he's going to raise you from the dead. It's interesting that in Philippians 3.10, Paul tells us what his goal in life is. His goal in life is to be raised from the dead. He writes that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Not just in this life. We want to know the power of the resurrection in this life. The resurrection power of Jesus is at work in us through the Holy Spirit. It's the same spirit. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the spirit that brought us from death to life that made us new, that gave us circumcised hearts, that's creating in us new affection for God, that's empowering us for obedience to God, that same spirit. So every day, in a sense, we ought to be praying for resurrection. Resurrect my mind, resurrect my heart, uh, resurrect my body. Well, that's going to come at the end. And Paul says that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings. We'd always like to skip over that part, right? So here's how Paul configures the Christian life. Knowing God, enjoying the power of his resurrection, sharing in the sufferings of Christ, being like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is saying, my goal in life is to be raised from the dead. It's a pretty good goal. I mean, what else is there? (laughs) It's the ultimate. And then we see that wonderful defense of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are all those who are of heaven. Just if we've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul is arguing that, yes, you have a physical body because you're like Adam. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is in you, you will have a resurrected body as Jesus does. We'll bear the image of the man of heaven. That is, we will look like Christ in glory. I'm going to make that point a little bit later in my sermon this morning. What Jesus promises is we will be like him in a resurrected body that is never subjected ever again in glory to sin, suffering, death, sadness, or any such thing. Those are the five assertions. And I'm going to take um, more time to tease out the more implication. Oh, look, Ezekiel 37, obviously the classic Old Testament passage on God raising the dead. Those, can those bones live? Can those bones live? Let's look at the moral implications a little bit as we finish this morning. And, and we'll obviously be doing this a lot more because... In a sense, much of what Paul is going to write in the rest of the chapter deals with this. Let's start with this point. We enjoy a holy obligation. It's not a burden. We enjoy it. A holy obligation of freedom, privilege, power to put to death the deeds of the flesh. See, the mindset on the flesh doesn't want to crucify sin. It's at peace with sin. The mindset on the spirit realizes, no, the flesh, sin is at war with me. I don't want it to get the better of me. It defaces the image of God in me. It grieves the Holy Spirit. It's a poke in the eye of Jesus. There's a whole new attitude towards sin. 
We now have, by the indwelling spirit, freedom, power to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We can be assured of success in a warfare with sin because of the Holy Spirit. And we know because of the Holy Spirit we will not suffer the death of peace with sin. If, you're at, if you die at peace with sin, you'll be forever at war with God. Not a good thing. So, 8.12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. See, it's like Paul can't get away from this. He's, he's drawing this contrast. He wants to hammer it in. He's saying it again. Think about the difference between life in the flesh, life in the spirit. If you're in the flesh, you're going to die. Think eternal death. But if by the spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's sanctification. That's drawing on the power of the Holy Spirit to fight indwelling sin. He's finally now answering the question that his thoughtful readers would have raised all through chapter 7 where he talks about this internal conflict, but he doesn't give you the answer how to wage war against indwelling sin. I'm not doing the thing I want to do. I'm doing the thing I don't want to do. And it raises the question, where does the power come to do that? Here's the verse that answers that. If by the Spirit you're putting to death the, uh, the old divines of, old, uh, of yesteryear used to call it mortification. If by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Vivification. Putting to death sin, living by the Spirit. So we have an obligation of gratitude and love to serve Christ and his interests, not our own. You and I need to get addicted to that. We are not addicted to that. We are addicted to serving our own interests. You're going to battle that every day that you wake up. Whether or not you're conscious of it, indwelling sin is saying to you, however subtly, just serve yourself, be your own person, rule your own life. No, the Holy Spirit creates in us the pleasure of doing something radically different, serving Christ and his interests, not our own. Here's the warning. If you take your sin to the law, in other words, your battle with sin is fought by putting before you all the rules and regulations, you're likely only to, going to get fear and pride to deter yourself. So what's going to deter you from doing the wrong thing? What's going to motivate you to do the wrong thing? If you're using the law, you'll likely be motivated by fear. God's going to get me if I don't do the right thing. Pride. I'll look bad if I don't do the right thing. I'll feel better about myself if I do the right thing. Take your sin to the law and that's what you get. Take your sin to a loving Savior. Reminding yourself, look what he's done for me, in spite of me. And you get a humble obligation to deter yourself. So what direction are you going to go? Take your sin to Christ, be humbled by his cross, be filled with the spirit of his love, be filled with power that is outside of you, or trusting yourself, take your sin to the law, and you get a bunch of new rules and regulations that ultimately either destroy you, you get in despair, you're like, the Christian life doesn't work, I never get any better. Or if you think you're succeeding, you become proud and arrogant, a Pharisee. No, take your sin to Jesus. He humbles you. He reminds you of his cross. He says, look what I suffered for you, in spite of you. I love you. Ah, oh, that creates a humble obligation to deter yourself. So here's the prayer. Holy Spirit, weaken that sin's power, the allure of sin, the luster of sin, the promise of sin, expose its lie. See, sin lies like this. You can't be happy without God and the addition of something else. 
Now, I'll unpack that in a lot of detail next week. We'll do a whole 45-minute teaching on idolatry. So I'm going to come back to that idea of idols making promises, idols lying to us, etc. So I'll come back to that. But just be aware that in your battle with sin, you're battling with a power that promises you things but lies to you. Here's a, a wonderful, helpful verse from, uh, from a hymn by Ora Rowan. What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Great question. See, idols are attractive to us. The idol of approval, control, being right, pleasure, wealth, comfort. All of these things appeal to us because in and of themselves, they're not bad. It's when you make it the thing that you have to have to be secure and significant. When you make it the thing, then it's an idol. So there's a beauty in these things. What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Great question. You can ask, ought to ask yourself that question in a sense. Every day you wake up, what will keep me from the allure of good things and making those things the best thing? What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty. In other words, there's no inherent power in telling you the right thing to do is this. Sometimes you need to save yourself from doing the wrong thing by merely preaching that to yourself. As a rule, though, a sense of rightness and duty can't deliver you from the idols of the earth. The, the, the classic illustration for me is King David in Jerusalem, and he sees Bathsheba. So who in history, at that point in history, knows the law of God better than anyone on the face of the earth? David. He knew you shall have no other gods before me. He knew the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. He knew you shall not murder. He knew you shall not steal. He knew you shall not covet. He knew the law of God better than anyone on earth. If there was one man on earth at that moment, time could be said to be a man after God's own heart. Who would that be? David. Yet here he is out on the rooftop in Jerusalem. He sees beautiful Bathsheba. Beauty. Nothing wrong with seeing a beautiful woman in a moment, but it became an idol when he said, I must have that. He knew the right thing to do, but he was overcome by indwelling sin, so a sense of duty had no ability to rescue him. The only thing that had the ability to rescue him upon sight of that, or if you inherit a million dollars, if whatever it is that, that happened, that providence happens to set before you that you might desire more than God, what can strip its seeming beauty, not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth? Jesus. Captivated by his beauty, worthy tribute, haste to bring. In other words, I'm going to be quick to worship. Let his peerless worth constrain thee. Crown him now unrivaled king. Seeing the peerless beauty and worth of Jesus is the only power on earth brought to us by the Holy Spirit to constrain us from uh, the power of indwelling sin. Sin is way too strong for us. Idols are way too beautiful. There is something more beautiful. It's Jesus. 
which is why we got to begin every day with fresh sight of Jesus, reminding ourselves, stirring ourselves up, waking ourselves up again to how beautiful Jesus is. So I can explain now why I give in to sin. I'm not seeing Jesus. You can explain now why you had power to be delivered from idols as they presented themselves to you. Jesus was more beautiful to you at that moment than sin. Let his peerless worth constrainly crown him now unrivaled king. We don't write hymns like this anymore. This is really good stuff. Thomas Watson, uh, a wonderful theologian many of us love and know, wrote this, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. So how would you pray if that's true? Spirit of God, Spirit of God, show me the awfulness of sin. Show me the heinousness of sin. Deliver me from its lies. Don't let me be seduced by it. Let sin be bitter. Let me con- You've got to contemplate this. Think about it. And of course, only by putting the word of God in front of us do we know what sin is. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And when Christ is sweet, sin will be bitter. So we have this challenge before us and we do this together as brothers and sisters in our home groups and Bible studies and as we visit with each other and pray for each other to make Christ sweeter and sweeter. Let's see Christ in the way we treat each other, in the way we speak to each other. We seek him. We, we, uh, we, we, we have our hearts individually filled with his grace, clear and clear. I love the way Moses puts it in Psalm 90. Satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, and we will rejoice and be glad all our days. Unless in the morning I am satisfied, with the love of God in Christ, my heart will seek to be satisfied with something else. You are, an, you are a worshiping being at your core. You, there's something you always want to satisfy you. You're always looking. And until the love of God is that satisfaction, we're going to be seduced and given to something else. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Okay, as I said, we will look at sin as idolatry. Next week, we'll do a whole big, long study on idolatry. I thank you for the time. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are in this uh, battle with indwelling sin. We know it because of the Spirit. We wouldn't be in this battle if the Spirit hadn't given us new hearts, hadn't circumcised our hearts and cut away indwelling sin so that we are now new creatures indwelt by Christ, the one raised from the dead. Thank you for this stunning promise that the one who raised Christ Jesus from the dead is in us, and he will certainly give life to our mortal bodies on that great day. May we live with the hope of resurrection. May we live in the power of the Spirit. It is only by you, Holy Spirit, that we can put to death the deeds of the flesh. We need as Paul writes to us in Ephesians 5.18 to not be drunk with wine. That is dissipation. We don't want to be under the control, influence of anything but the spirit of life and truth, the spirit of glory, the spirit of Christ himself, the spirit of resurrection. If, if, uh, so don't be drunk with wine. That is dissipation. But be filled with the spirit. This is likely one of the most neglected commandments in the Bible. We are commanded, present tense, to be filled, to be under the control of, to be intoxicated by the Spirit of Christ 
Give us an addiction for that. Give us a hungering for that. Help us with that. Thank you that you forgive us for how frail and how weak and how faltering we are. And yet the Spirit will always contend in us and for us. And he'll do that for Christ's sake. That Christ would be glorified as the giver of life. Christ would be glorified as the Savior. Christ would be glorified as the rescue of a people for himself. Have mercy on us to this end. Send us power by the Spirit. In his name, amen. Thank you all. Thank you so much. We love you guys. Love you all too. Thanks for joining us.